please stay tuned to the end of this program or see the show notes for important information regarding today's speakers and the content of this podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode six of Allergy Talk, a roundup of the latest in the field of allergy and immunology by the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. For today's episode, we will be reviewing three articles from the July-August 2020 issue of Allergy Watch, a bi-monthly publication which provides research summaries to college members from the major journals in allergy and immunology. You can also earn CME credit by listening to this podcast. For information about CME credit or to read archived issues of Allergy Watch, head over to college.acaai.org publications slash allergy wash. And we added one other way for you to continue the discussion about these podcasts. Join the ACAAI community on Doc Matter, and we'll have key talk takeaways as well as engaging questions with opportunity for ongoing conversation. So hello, everyone. My name is Jerry Lee. Uh, welcome to Allergy Talk. I'm an associate professor of allergy and immunology at Emory University. And I'm joined by my two co-hosts, starting with Dr. Stan Feynman. Hi, everybody. Uh, yeah, it's great to be here. I'm editor-in-chief of uh, Allergy Watch and a past president of the American uh, College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology, and I'm in practice here in Atlanta. And the third chair is Dr. Marin Kalangara. Hi, I'm Dr. Marin Kalangara, and I'm an assistant professor of allergy and immunology at the Emory Clinic in Atlanta. So we have a theme podcast today about asthma evaluation and therapeutics. So let's just get started. I'll start. This was an article uh, that was published uh, in the Journal of Allergy and Clinical Immunology. And the title of the article is Prevalence and Impact of Comorbid Laryngeal Dysfunction in Asthma, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. So we all know about triggers or comorbidities for severe asthma. We think about sleep apnea and obviously rhinosinusitis. But as we know, you know, we're only treating the lower airways with our therapeutics, but some of us, some of our patients fail therapy. And that's, you know, in the differential diagnosis, we consider upper airway or laryngeal dysfunction. And so when we use the term laryngeal dysfunction, I'm talking about, you know, any of the upper airway disorders and specifically what we would call vocal cord dysfunction or paroxysmal vocal cord motion. And in this article, they're calling it inducible laryngeal dysfunction or laryngeal dysfunction. So this is a systematic review where they took articles that examined comorbid laryngeal dysfunction amongst asthmatics. And this is in adults confirmed by either uh, rhinoscopy and visualization of the larynx or CT scan. And what they wanted to do was just to see how often they're comorbid and potentially look at clinical asthma disease markers, though unfortunately there wasn't enough studies to do that. But this article basically looked at 6,085 studies and they were able to find 21 studies with 1,637 patients. Um, 10 of them looked at the larynx through rhinoscopy where they actually did a provocation, usually exercise, though that could be also deep breathing, phonating, panting, sniffing, or chemical exposure. And then 
The other studies did a CT-based assessment. And so that would be an inspiratory or expiratory CAT scan, 320 slice CT of the larynx to look for an inappropriate or excessive laryngeal closure. So between the CT scans and the visualization of larynx, they found a surprising prevalence of 25%. We're saying one in four. So let's say that again. It's potential that one in four of your asthma patients that are adults could have concurrent laryngeal dysfunction. Now, to dig in that further, in those who did the endoscopy without a trigger, it was down to 4%. But those who did some sort of provocation, it was high as 38%. Uh, the CT scan data was approximately the same. Now, if you compare that to non-asthmatic controls, um, they had two studies that looked at non-asthmatics. It was more like 5%. So it wasn't just the general population. This may be specific for asthma. Now, I mentioned that other secondary question about asthma outcomes. Unfortunately, there was too much heterogeneity in assessment to make conclusions. But in general, uh, what they found was that, yes, that, you know, we should consider the upper airway in our asthmatics. Um, I know that's usually reserved for patients who fail multiple therapies, but it's given a prevalence of one in four. Perhaps we should be asking these questions uh, on patients just on maybe step four or five therapy or potentially um, other in investigations or review systems. Some of the features that may suggest laryngeal dysfunction might be exertional dyspnea, clearly strider or choking. But I'll be honest with you, I'm not sure if I specifically have incorporated upper airway symptoms or markers of laryngeal dysfunction in my evaluation of asthma patients. But certainly now after this article, I potentially should be being more aggressive in screening those patients. So I wasn't sure how often you initiate the workup of laryngeal dysfunction in your patients. Uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts. So, so let me, let me uh, chime in here. Uh, that is a very high um, incidence, uh, but you know what? It's, and it's very difficult for me to evaluate laryngeal dysfunction in patients because they might have laryngeal dysfunction after exercise. And in fact, Dick Weber, who's a past president of the college, used to, uh, at, at the National Jewish, he would challenge people in an exercise uh, challenge on a treadmill and do a scope right there, you know, immediately after and was able to document the abnormal vocal cord motility, uh, you know, the chinking that you see in the vocal cords when you do a laryngoscopy, a nasopharyngoscopy, uh, laryngoscopy, when patients are having active symptoms. But of course, most of the time people come into the office, they're not having active symptoms. So one of the things that I've been doing recently, uh, because I've not been doing nasopharyngoscopy since uh, March, since the COVID, um, I've had people come in and, and take videos of the symptoms when they're having it. This is particularly in uh, adolescents um, who are athletes who complain of this exercise-induced asthma or asthma-type symptoms. And I have them take a video, and sometimes you can get a, a, doc, a good documentation of that inspiratory uh, strider that they develop when mm. they're pushing themselves too much. And quite frankly, I'm going to have a shout out to 
uh, one of our college members, Ray Davis, who's an allergist in St. Louis, who was the one who put me onto this concept of taking a video because he published an article where he documented the diagnosis of vocal cord dysfunction with exercise in a child, in fact, was a swimmer, and uh, published it in the annals uh, using video. So uh, just another tool, something to think about, but um, it's it's not an easy diagnosis. Yeah, no, I mean, I agree. And I've just been seeing a lot of concomitant, not just vocal cord dysfunction and asthma, but also a lot of other forms of dysfunctional breathing in asthma, um, especially now that we're doing this multidisciplinary clinic with ENT and the voice clinic. I've just been seeing a lot more patients with it. So, but there's just no good way to screen for dysfunctional breathing in all comers in the asthma clinic. And in the beginning, I was using this questionnaire called the Nijmegen questionnaire, um, because that's the only tool that exists to screen for dysfunctional breathing. But that specifically seemed to look mostly for hyperventilation syndrome and wouldn't really help differentiate like vocal cord dysfunction, etc. So I stopped using it. But it's I didn't realize that the prevalence of ECD was that high. Right. I know that's really surprising. So definitely something we should be thinking about in our asthma patients. So uh, the next article we have is by Dr. Stan Feynman to review. And I think we are always worried about are the right patients and enough patients getting the medicines they, they need. And I think you have a good article illustrating this issue. Yes, and that's why I decided to pick this article. John Oppenheimer uh, was the uh, editor who reviewed this for Allergy Watch. And uh, the article was published in the um, uh, Jackie in Practice in the uh, February of this uh, year. And uh, it basically, the, the title is Trends and Disparities in Asthma Biologic Use in the United States. So this was a study um, basically that looking at um, you know patients who had moderate to severe asthma. And it, the, the data is from a group called Opt- Optimum Labs Data Warehouse, which basically these researchers identify patients using um, insurance claims. So they had one or more claims for an asthma biologic, and the the period was between 2003 and 2018. And the analysis included a cohort of uh, 6,642 individuals um, who then they broke down into patient quarters, over 44,000 patient quarters, and the incident cohort of 4,779 individuals including 123 who had multiple incidents. In other words, they, they might've had more than one of the biologics that they, that they used. So the prevalence of the asthmatic biologic use interestingly peaked in 2006. So obviously we only had one biologic at that time, that was uh, omelizumab, and the rate of use was 2.95 per 1,000 people who had asthma. And the overall incidence um, and prevalence kind of increased after an introduction of four new agents in 2015. So in 2015, I I guess you all probably remember that uh, there were, um, you know, other agents approved. Of course, Zolaire uh, was approved uh, back in 2003 for asthma. Um, And Nucala, you know, mepolizumab was approved in November of 2015, uh, followed by, um, uh, I think, uh, reslizumab and then uh, venrolizumab in November of 17. And finally, uh, 
uh, dupilumab for asthma was in 18. That was, of course, in, uh, for eczema in 17. But the bottom line is the incidence and prevalence increased after these four um, were uh, introduced, um, but they did remain lower than previous peaks. So the factors that associated with the asthma biologic use were age, they were between 18 and 64. They generally, they, they had an Asian, an Asian race or ethnicity. They had a household income that was over 40,000. They tended to be in the West. They tended to have commercial insurance and they tended to have specialist access. So you had have to have those basic factors. And so the biologic prescriptions were matched to 2,300 unique providers and 56% were allergists, 35% were pulmonologists, and 9% were family practitioners. So allergists make up over half of all the biologic prescriptions for patients with asthma in this, uh, in this analysis. 65% of the providers wrote for only one biologic, and interestingly, 9.5% of the clinicians prescribed 29.5% of the incident users. So only about 10% of the docs made up about 30% of the prescriptions. So um, most, in fact, uh, about 9% were paid through a, a special pharmacy benefit uh, versus patients bringing them in to the office. And we can talk briefly about that. This is the concept of white bagging or, or brown bagging or buy and bill, which some uh, allergists do. This is the, the white bagging is where the patient you know, we order the medicine, the pharmacy benefit uh, prescribes it, and then they send it to the physician's office. That's what we do 90 plus percent of the time. There are some, you know, patients can do what they call brown bagging, where the pharmacy sends it right to them. Uh, most of the time, that's not what, what we do in our practice. Uh, but the, the fact is, this, this way of getting the medicine really increased. It quadrupled from 2009 to 2017 where the patients were participating in this buy and bill, you know, phenomena. And uh, so, so, you know, the bottom line was that the, um, you know, there were just certain characterizations of the patients. Obviously they generally had insurance. Um, they were generally, you know, better off, you know, socioeconomically. Um, and uh, interestingly, they were from the West and uh, the Asian race had more uh, patients and other uh, characteristics, and allergists made up over half the, the prescriptions. So um, the take-home message for uh, John, John Oppenheimer, he felt that uh, they, basically the summary of the article is they found a very low overall use of asthma biologics and disparities uh, really in the access to these agents. And there was a concentration of prescriptions really in a small group of, of clinicians. So just a small group of people of, of really allergists prescribed most of them. And so there's really a need to reform the utilization of asthma biologics. I think we need to be able to identify the patients better. Uh, we need to you know, get the availability or the access to the uh, drug better you know, uh, available to more patients who will uh, qualify. And I think these are the things that really came up in this article. So I think it raises a, a number of interesting questions, and it's good to have this kind of data. And um, I'll be interested to see what people say about it. I live in the ivory tower of Atlanta. And what I mean by that is, you know, I'm fortunate to be a provider at the Grady Memorial Health System where 
you know, the, we are giving heavily discounted care for patients without insurance. Now, obviously getting into the clinic would be the hardest part. You know, they, they have to live in the area to, to qualify for the discounted service. But once they're in, you know, with patient assistance and the support of various companies to help people with uh, economic need, um, they get the medicines they need. And we're very fortunate that that's available, but that just doesn't discount everyone else in outside of the city, uh, across the country. If you're saying so specialists are the gateway and they don't have access to specialists for whatever reason, I can see that this is going to be the biggest issue. Uh, and, and how to address that obviously would be, uh, you know, obviously education, um, breaking down the barriers to get access to specialists and to train a specialist, maybe telemedicine options. You know, there's so many people who are not getting the care they need because they don't need have the doctors nearby or the, the financial concerns. But once we see them, we can get them the treatment that they need. And I agree with Stan that characterizing the patient's who um, receive biologics is important, but as well as also the providers. And John Oppenheimer and I worked with Jonathan Bernstein recently on a survey of um, practicing allergists in the annals a couple of months ago, just sort of highlighting the discrepancies in biologic prescriptions across the United States. And also, I think it just sort of really highlights that even in on this provider side, Allergy specialists and asthma specialists aren't necessarily always adhering to guidelines or recommendations. And I think the physicians ourselves could do a much better job at picking appropriate patients. And And I think there have been several editorials that I've seen that have sort of reinforced this issue as well. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I, I just thought it was kind of interesting, you know, that, that the use of omalizumab peaked in 2006. Yes. You know, uh, and then, and the other ones, the new ones, um, uh, the, the, uh, IL-5 inhibitors and, and the new, uh, dupilumab, uh, their, you know, incidence of use is, is much, much lower. So, um, so are you, Stan, are you saying that the use of omalizumab in 2006 exceeded the use of all the other biologics combined in 2015 or whenever the study was no, in 2018. In other words, the so dupilumab peaked in 2018 okay. at a 0.02. I mean, it was just approved. Um, mepolizumab, which had been around for a while, because then they looked at 2018, it was a 0.64 per thousand people um, versus you know when omalizumab peaked. Now, I don't I don't have the number for omalizumab in 2018, but uh, resolizumab was, of course, a lot lower than mepolizumab. Mepolizumab was 0.64. Resolizumab was 0.09. So, uh, you know, much, much lower, over, over six times lower. So, wow. Uh, but, of course, we know that because it's just harder to use. It's IV. So um, so I'm sure that's part of it, too. But, uh, you know, I, I think I'm glad to see that you wrote that article. We, we probably should talk about that, and, and you probably should put a reference there so that we can uh, look at that and... and you know, I, maybe, I agree. Maybe, maybe someone will pick it for the next allergy watch. Yeah, we should do that. It depends on which journal it's going to. Then we'll find oh, out on that person. Oh. <laughs> you don't have to tell it's, us now. It was, it was, it was, we'll, we'll bring yeah. it up. We'll do it. It. Okay. It, it was published in Annals a couple of months ago. Oh, Annals? Okay. Uh-huh. Well, obviously Stan will hunt down that person. Um, 
We'll make sure. Okay. We'll make sure we get it uh, on Allergy Talk. But there's a little bit of a several month delay sometimes. <laughs> uh, so, Marin, I think you have an article that reviews some of the new information we got about dupilumab. That's right. So, John Oppenheimer also reviewed these two papers from Jackie in Practice and Allergy Watch. Both of these papers mined data from the Quest study of dupilumab and asthma. The first analysis was of a subset of Quest patients with or without allergic asthma. And what they found was that, as expected, dupilumab reduced severe asthma exacerbations by more than a third at the 200 milligram dose and almost half at the 300 milligram dose. In addition, dupilumab also improved FEV1, asthma control, and these improvements were more prominent in patients with higher type 2 inflammatory biomarkers at baseline. Dupilumab improved outcomes in similarly in patients with or without allergic asthma, and in both groups, there was immediate and lasting reductions in type 2 inflammatory markers, and the authors sort of highlighted that dupilumab is beneficial for patients with both allergic as well as non-allergic asthma phenotypes as long as they had some sort of type 2 inflammatory marker at baseline. The second paper was, I thought, a little more interesting, and this was a post hoc analysis of the effect of dupilumab in patients with and without comorbid chronic sinusitis in asthmatics, plus or minus nasal polyps, since these patients with comorbid sinusitis and asthma tend to be more difficult to treat and have more severe disease. 382 of 1,900 asthmatics had concomitant self-reported chronic sinusitis, and these patients tended to have more exacerbations and higher levels of type 2 biomarkers. Dupilumab reduced the rate of annual asthma exacerbations by more than 60% in the subgroup with sinusitis and 40% in the non-sinusitis subgroup, and this decrease was especially pronounced in patients with a baseline bloody eosinophil count of greater than 150 and a baseline pheno of greater than 25. And in patients who were treated with placebo, the sinusitis group had a higher rate of asthma exacerbations than the non-sinusitis group. Similarly, dupilumab also produced an improvement in FEV1 that was more pronounced in the sinusitis group as opposed to patients without sinusitis. And again, this effect was more prominent with higher eosinophil counts and higher pheno. The others tried to explain why this effect was on asthma was much more prominent in patients with sinusitis. And it could be due to the fact that dupilumab had a synergistic effect on type 2 inflammation in both the upper as well as the lower airways. It could also be because the chronic sinusitis subgroup was just more severe at baseline in terms of exacerbation rates and type 2 biomarkers. And patients with sinusitis of note also had significant improvement in their SNOT-22 scores and quality of life. The major limitation of the study was that chronic sinusitis was self-reported as opposed to being physician-diagnosed, and so they were really unable to discriminate further between patients with and without nasal polyps, and also patients may have been erroneously classified as having sinusitis or not having chronic sinusitis itself. However, there were significant enough baseline differences between the two groups 
um, as in the chronic sinusitis patients tended to have much more severe disease, suggesting that this subgroup did identify a specific phenotype. Uh, overall, the benefits of dupilumab were most evident in patients with comorbid asthma and chronic sinusitis and improved symptoms in both the upper as well as lower airways. When I took a first look at this article, I was actually hopeful that it was going to be evaluating the effect of dupilumab in patients with chronic sinusitis without polyps because while it was recently approved for the treatment of nasal polyps, there are no current FDA-approved medications specifically for the treatment of chronic sinusitis without nasal polyps. And this can also be associated with type 2 inflammation. And I think Xhans is sort of on the road to being the first sort of designated medication for chronic sinusitis, but there aren't any yet. So it will be interesting just to see the effect of dupilumab in patients with chronic sinusitis, period, without polyps. So... It's interesting that they specifically are looking at allergic asthma because it's that my perception is is that that is what omeluzumab or touts to be their their role. Like if you have the allergic person, um, you know we are specifically targeting allergy. In light of this, uh, for Marin, who gets uh, Zolaire for asthma? So I know. So that's interesting. So I personally still use Zolaire for my kids with allergic asthma who have recurrent viral induced flares, um, sort of consistent with that antiviral effect of Zolaire um, and the fact that it facilitates uh, the restoration of interferon alpha production in plasma cytodendritic cells in, in this specific patient subset. Um, but who knows, there may be a study showing that dupilumab by virtue of suppressing IgE production also has a similar effect. Yeah, they could do that same study they did right. with uh, omeluzumab and that would basically take that away, not take that away, but show <laughs> that it'd be equally uh, efficacious. Uh, efficacious. Right. Yeah. Um, no, that's interesting. And I thought, uh, Marin, what you said about the, the fact that the upper airway and the lower airway, that, you know, we used, we used to talk about the united airway, you know, you have to treat the upper airway to help the lower airway. Um, and, you, you know, that was pretty clear in this, in this study. And, of course, we know that dupilumab is now approved for uh, nasal polyps. Um, and, in fact, some of the patients that I've seen who've had that uh, have been taking that for the nasal polyps. Uh, some of them say they now have a sense of smell that they haven't had for a long time. So, um, you know, that, that maybe that's uh, a factor. I mean, uh, anyway, I thought that was uh, interesting that you, that you, you know, brought up these studies. Right. So in the chronic sinusitis patient without nasal polyps, is there a way to prove that they have T2 inflammation? I would say the patients with chronic sinusitis without nasal polyps the ones with T2 inflammation are probably the ones with that are driven by A2P. So they'll be allergic, you're so saying? They, yes, they would be allergic. So I okay, can't... Yeah, yeah. I, I've, I've never phenotyped them that mm-hmm. way, but I mean, that, that does make sense. Right. Uh, um, no, I, I think you're right. We definitely have refractory chronic sinusitis patients. And so if these biologics work for nasal polyps, certainly more studies would greatly increase our arsenal for the refractory patient. That's awesome. 
thanks for reviewing that. So that's all the articles for today. Uh, there will be a part two. So uh, stay tuned for that. Please rate our podcast and iTunes. And we really appreciate all the feedback you've given us. We are planning some of our future podcasts based on your email. So please email any questions or future episodes to allergytalk one word at acaai.org. And don't forget to claim CME credit. You spent the time listening to this article. And we finally, we also plan to do further follow-up discussions and engage the community on the Doc Matter app. So please look out for that post. Have a wonderful day, everyone. The ACAAI is presenting this podcast for educational purposes only. It is not medical advice or intended to replace the judgment of a licensed physician. The college is not responsible for any claims related to procedures, professionals, products, or methods discussed in the podcast, and it does not approve or endorse any products, professionals, services, or methods that might be referenced. Today's speakers have the following disclosures. Drs. Lee and Dr. Kangara have nothing to disclose, and Dr. Feynman has been a speaker for AZBI and Shire and has done research for AIMU, DBV, Shire, and Regeneron.